Well, hey, Church of the Beloved, uh, thanks for joining our service today. And personally, it's so good to be back. Many of you guys know that uh, I've been on a, a three-month sabbatical and uh, just came back. We were able to spend some time in Korea uh, finalizing our adoption um, for our second son, Joshua. And so I just wanted to, uh, before I begin, show you guys a quick picture of our family. We're, we are now officially a family of four. And so on this screen should be a picture of us. Um, the smallest one, that's Joshua. And um, it's been uh, just about a month now since he uh, came to the States, and he's been adjusting really well. Uh, Steph and I, my wife and I, we've, we've never been so tired in our lives, but, uh, but every day we wake up thankful and joyful. And, and I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to our church and to you guys for uh, everyone who's just shown so much uh, support and uh, been just so generous to us uh, and to our family, whether it's through prayer or uh, financial support for the adoption, or even as we came back, um, you, you guys have set up a meal train for our family so that we um, can, can be relieved of the burden of cooking on top of raising another kid. And so um, every little thing that you guys have uh, shown to us has just been an uplifting experience. And so we just want to say thank you for that. Um, well, with that, I want to jump into our series and our sermon today. We are continuing a series uh, in the book of Hebrews. We're calling it the Gospel According to Hebrews, and this is the second week. And uh, last week, Pastor Abe did a wonderful job of kicking off the series. And I, I just kind of want to um, frame the, the setting for us again and the stage for us again so that we understand the context of what's happening in the church and the fellowship that the author is writing to. And then also, like, who is he writing to and what's going on? Because the context really helps us understand the conversation and really allows us to have a, a better and deeper understanding of what God perhaps could be speaking to us about as well. And so the letter to the Hebrews is um, addressing this group of uh, Jewish Christians. There's a fellowship in which these people who have been converted to Christianity, uh, most of their lives have lived around Jewish thought and, and Jewish worship. And so what that means is basically these people for most of their lives, the Old Testament was the place that they were most comfortable with. It was their place of familiarity. It's what they knew. It's, what, it's all they knew until they converted to Christ. And so there was this temptation uh, whenever they felt tested in their faith, whenever they felt the heat kind of rise, uh, you know, below their feet and, and they felt kind of their faith being uh, tested in, in a way, they were tempted to go back and drift back to their old ways, back to what they were comfortable with, uh, back to what they kind of grew up with, back to what they were familiar with. And so uh, Hebrews, uh, if you guys read on and as you guys join this series, which is going to lead us up to Palm Sunday and Easter, you guys are going to notice that almost in every chapter of Hebrews, the author uh, references the Old Testament, and it's because of the audience. It's because that's what they knew. And so he uses the Old Testament to draw us back to Jesus, to draw us back to who Christ really is, to shine the light back on Christ so that they have a deeper understanding, so their hearts can be more open and their lives can be lived unto Him, right? And so uh, what you're going to see is that there's a, a lot of uh, imagery, quotes from the Old Testament. You know, um, as, as I studied this, I, I came to know that there is no other New Testament book um, that has more Old Testament references than the letter to the Hebrews. And here's why the author is writing to them. 
He's not writing to them because they're doing incredibly well. There's all this progress and there's a, a celebration that, that he just needs to express to them. He's writing to them because these Jewish Christians were struggling. They were struggling quite a bit. They were struggling because of, of the, the circumstances that were around them. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we live in a day where there's so much turmoil. And even this past week, as you saw the news, there's so much going on, uh, so much bad news that's happening. And, uh, and, and yet, thousands of years ago, um, the world was much the same. It, it was still broken, even in the fellowship of the Hebrews. They, they, their, their issue, though, their struggle was because they lived in the, under the rule of the Roman emperor named Nero, who was infamous for uh, persecuting Christians. And so if you were caught in expressing Christ as your Lord and, and witnessing uh, to, to others, uh, I mean, you would put your life in danger. And, and, and that threat was imminent for them because Emperor Nero would be uh, known for mass persecutions. And that threat would become closer and closer to where the Hebrews were. And so it, it was just right outside their backyard. And so what happened was these, this fellowship of... Um, Jewish Christians, right, it caused them to be discouraged. It caused them to be full of fear, and that fear affected their faith. It's, it's caused them to consider not meeting together. And you're going to see later on that the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them, do not give up meeting together. But that's what they were facing. That's what they were thinking. They were being tempted. They were being tested. They were drifting away. They were struggling. And there was this fearfulness that has just really overwhelmed them and taken over their life. And their fearfulness has challenged their faithfulness. I don't know if you've ever been there. But when fear creeps in, it starts to test our faith. There can be an opportunity to go deeper with God and to know him even in an incredible way. But there's also this temptation to drift and to flee towards comfort. The author of Hebrews is exhorting them to to not give up, to, to, to not drift away. And what he's trying to tell them is, in fact, the thing that you need to do is actually pay more closer attention to the message of the gospel they've heard. And what he's saying is you actually, what's actually better for you, what you need is not to flee from uh, a danger and run towards comfort, but to run to Christ and to have a closer look. What you need is more clarity of who Christ is. And so pay closer attention to the gospel. And so when you open up Hebrews chapter 2, we didn't read it today, but in the verse, the first verse of chapter 2, the author is using these words, drifting away. And he warns them. He says, you know, be careful not to drift away. Pay closer attention to the gospel. And I, and I thought about that, that idea of drifting away and, and how true that is even for believers today. And when you think about drifting away, it, it's not anything dramatic. It's not like you wake up one day and it's just this dramatic turn. Drifting away is often the slow process. It's often this subtle process and things that just don't happen overnight, but one day you look back and you realize, man, I used to be there, but now I'm here and I don't even know how I got there. That's what happens when you drift, right? There's a scholar named Ken Hughes in his commentary. He says, the warning here uses sailing language, suggesting the image of a ship whose anchor has been broken loose from the ocean floor and is dangerously drifting away. And such dangerous drifting is not intentional, 
but comes rather from inattention and carelessness. And he says, at first in calm waters, it's unnoticeable, but as the storms of opposition rose, some were drifting further and further away from Christ. And I just wonder if that's you. I wonder if that's us. I wonder if that's someone in your life. I wonder if that's maybe a group of people in your life. If, if you're human, you, you can relate to suffering, right? If you're human, you can relate to hardship. You can relate to testing and temptation and challenges. And, and, and what that means is we can relate to the temptation of drifting away. And so I think Hebrews is incredibly relevant for us today. For us to have a deeper and closer look at the gospel that we have heard, we've believed, we've received, to take a closer look at who Christ is. Because at times, if, as we go through hardships, and 2020 was an incredibly challenging year for the world <laughs> with the pandemic, and it's still kind of continuing on, and yet, what do we do? We're, do we draw near to God and wrestle with this character and purpose, or do we drift away? It reminds me of um, my old church back in the uh, mid-90s. I know it's like, what is that, 20, like 25 years ago now. But in my old church, uh, right where the entrance of the youth group worship room was, there was a sign on the outside so that as kids and students would come in, they would see the sign before they enter worship. And the sign basically said, if God feels far away, then who moved? If God feels far away, then who moved? And it was like this convicting question, right, for these poor teenagers who would walk into worship and having to see this, you know, there's no way you could ignore it. If God feels far away, and I'm sure every student at some point throughout their time in youth ministry felt that, that God feels far away, the question was, then who moved? And we think that God must have moved, that God left us, that God is somehow not with us. And yet, the reality is for us to look inside and to be honest with ourselves and to say, if God feels far away, then we've moved. We've drifted. We've made idols. We've chosen comfort. We've chosen the temporary. And maybe that's you. And I want to encourage you today that there's hope for us to not drift. There's hope for us when we're tested. There's hope for us even when circumstances all around our country and the world seems dim. If God is far away, then who moved? And it's a warning not to, not to drift, but to draw near and take a closer look at who God is. And what the author does is he's constantly, throughout Hebrews, he's, he's redirecting our attention. And he's, he's writing to the fellowship in Hebrews, and he's redirecting their attention. And he, he wants them to see one thing. And, just, and it's not a thing, but it's a someone, and it's Jesus. And he wants them to fix their eyes, not just take a look in the morning and once in the evening, but fix their eyes on Jesus throughout the day, throughout your life, until you see him face to face. Fix your eyes there. That's where we're headed, right? But it's so easy when we have bad news, when we're uh, living in a time and a society and a world that is just filled with uncertainty and just uh, harm and danger, and it's so easy to be fixated on what's around us. Hebrews is saying, don't fix your eyes on what's around you. Fix your eyes on the one who lives in you by the Spirit. Fix your eyes on Christ. 
You know, one of the things that are, that are, that's kind of been different in our home is that, you know, our oldest son, Benjamin, he, he talks maybe too much, but he talks all the time. And so he, he doesn't really use his hands or uh, anymore to, to point us in a direction. He'll just use his words. But Joshua only, uh, he can only say a few words and, you know, uh, two syllables at a time and can't put a sentence together yet. Babbles most of the time. So the way he gets our attention is he's pointing. And he points like this, and he's like, he's like pointing to different things all day long. And like as you follow him, you feel like you're ADD because he's just pointing at uh, constantly different things. He wants a toy. He wants his snack. He wants food. He wants his milk. He wants his clothes. He wants his socks. He, he's pointing to this. He's pointing to that. He's pointing to the food on his clothes. He's just pointing constantly, trying to get daddy and mommy's attention. And so wh- wherever he's pointing is where we look. Wherever my son points is where the father looks, right? And, and what this is, this is trying to show us is that Hebrews is actually pointing the finger as well. And he's pointing the listeners. He's pointing the fellowship. He's pointing church of the beloved to a direction. But it's not in 50 different directions. He's pointing in one direction. And, and last week, Pastor Abe mentioned that Hebrews is, is written like a sermon, and it is. And the writer in this sermon, this whole letter, he just has one message. If you guys haven't noticed yet, you will. But he just has one theme, one message that he's constantly pointing back to. And it's this, keep your eyes on Jesus. See Jesus. Look to Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus because he is the good news. And the good news is found in him. So he wants us to look closer. And I just have a few minutes here, but I wanted to uh, just keep your, encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Hebrews 2. And I'm going to go through the passage here real quick and just share with you guys five quick things about Jesus the author wants us to see and pay closer attention to. Because ultimately, this is where our good news is. And this good news is not for just head knowledge, but this good news, hopefully, my prayer is that it will start to pierce your heart, take root in your life. And help you to respond faithfully, no matter what circumstance or situation you're in. Number one is this, that he wants us to see the supremacy of Jesus, right? And then he wants us to see, number two, the suffering of Jesus. Number three, the salvation in Jesus. Number four, the sacrifice of Jesus. And number five, the sufficiency of Jesus. If you guys haven't noticed, they're all, they all begin with the letter S, right? That, that took 40 hours this week to, to think of that. So, So you're welcome. But the supremacy, the suffering, the salvation, the sacrifice, and the sufficiency of Jesus. So number one is the supremacy of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, he opens up, and in verse 8, we uh, had that read for us today. He says that um, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And so what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is that this Jesus, in chapter 1, you if, if you remember from last week, he is superior to the angels. He is much more than the angels. He's higher than the angels, right? And so what he's saying in verse 8 is he's, he put everything, God put everything in subjection to Christ, his son. There's nothing that's outside of his control. He wants us, the author wants this fellowship, wants our church to see the supremacy of Jesus, there is nothing, there is no circumstance, no situation, even in what happened last week, 
There is nothing outside the control and, and uh, control of Jesus. This is a helpful reminder for us today to remember that when things seem out of control, there is still one who is in control. And it's not you. It's not me. It's not our government. But it's in Christ who rules as king, right? The question, though, for us is this. When we watch the news, when we see what's going on, it doesn't seem like everything is in subjection to him. When you see your life and your personal life and there's trouble, there's harm, people are giving you a hard time, you wonder, like, where is God in all this? It doesn't seem like, you know, uh, uh, contrary to what Hebrews is saying, that there's nothing outside his control, and yet you, you look at your life and you're like, it's out of control. And so how is God in control? And the question is, how do we respond when in our immediate situation, Christ does not seem to be in control? I want to read you a quote from uh, a scholar in his commentary. He said, in Western Christianity especially, we have become committed to relieving the pain behind our problems rather than using our pain to wrestle more passionately with the character and purposes of God. Feeling better has become more important than finding God. Amen. That's, that's really good. That's really good stuff. That's, that hits home for me. And when circumstances seem to be out of control, instead of remembering that God is in control, we like to take control. We, we say, I'll be the supreme one. I'll, I'll take control. I'll, I'll, I'll drive the situation. And so we do everything we can to relieve that pain rather than wrestling more with the character and purposes of God. And so feeling better has become more important and finding God. So what happens is, in that moment, instead of declaring Christ the supreme, we're saying we are supreme. If God has to answer every prayer of yours, in your timing, in the fashion you want it, then it is not God who is supreme. It's you. It's me. But the fact that God is supreme allows us to trust him, allows us to say we can wait we can even receive a no if it's not your will. Because ultimately, all things are in subjection to you. We trust you, Lord, is the way we respond. We draw near to you, Lord, is the way we respond. Because he reigns supreme. Number two is this, that he wants us to see the suffering of Jesus. See, see what the author does is incredible. At first, it talks about the supremacy of Jesus. And in chapter 1, he says he's there, you know, Jesus is higher than the angels. But in chapter 2, he talks about how for a little while he was made lower than the angels. In verse 9, he says, but we see him, right, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the author wants us to see that this supreme Jesus, who is much more superior than the angels, has uh, taken a position that's lower than the angels. A supreme Jesus took on the suffering of man. And this gives us, and the, the reason why he does that is he gives us this imagery, a picture of how deep and how wide and how high the love of God is for us. That he doesn't just reign supreme from afar and at a distance, but he reigns close to us even coming to us 
like one of us. God became flesh. God took on human flesh. Jesus made himself like us, taking on human form. And what that does is he puts himself at risk. He makes himself vulnerable. He puts himself in harm's way. And this is the incarnation of Christ so that he can identify with all our suffering. Right? God in the flesh becomes one of us. God is, is not one of us, but in his mercy, he chose to be one of us. And I don't know if you guys understand the full weight of that, but many of you guys have um, taken a, a mission trip before in your life. I, by the grace of God, I've been to a couple countries uh, for missions and been to China, uh, Thailand, Guatemala, Mexico, and incredible places that God allowed me to, to be uh, in for a, for a short time and uh, to share the gospel with people there. But every time I'm at a different country, I always ask myself the question as I'm looking around people uh, and how they live and what they do and circumstances they live in, I ask myself, could I live here? Could I spend my whole life here? You know, because you're there and you're there for two weeks or a month and that's different than thinking about your whole life there. And I ask myself, could I live among them? Can I, could I become like them? And I want to be honest with you, it's never an easy answer. Sure, there's missionaries that um, would, would die to, to be amongst them. And, and yet for most of us, we would say that's never an easy answer because we're convinced that where we came from is better. And as you think about that question, I want you to think about Christ and what he has done and the distance that he has gone for us. Because God doesn't come from one country to another. He came from heaven to earth. God took on flesh. And why did he come? He came not for the riches of the world. He made himself low and took a lowly position to die on a cross. He came to give his life for us. And so that's why Hebrews says now he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he died for everyone. He didn't die just for himself. He died for us, sinless, yet crucified for the sinner. And that word tasted might give us a, the wrong idea here. That word tasted, tasted death is, you know, we think of um, tasting like when you go to Costco and you know, they have the samples where they give you like a little slice of the whole and, and then you come back five minutes later pretending like you've never been there and getting another slice. You, you, know, you know what I mean? Amen. And, uh, and we think that's what tasting death is like. In fact, that's actually it's quite the opposite. Taste is a Hebrew metaphor that doesn't mean to sample but to fully partake in. And what the, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus fully parta- partook the suffering of death. He drank from the bitter cup of death till there was nothing more death could give. He took it all. Every ounce of death that was supposed to be on us, every ounce of punishment that was supposed to be on us, every ounce of the wrath of God for which we have rebelled against God for, God in Jesus took that and drank that cup on our behalf till it had nothing else to give. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to see the suffering of Jesus, that he did that for us. And if he did that for us, what circumstance is there that God cannot deliver us from? And then he wants us to see the salvation then, 
That in his suffering, he has made a way for salvation. So this is the third thing he wants us to see, that in Jesus is, is not just his supremacy and their suffering, but there's a point to it, that through it, there is now salvation for us to become his sons and his daughters, to be his children. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So it was the salvation through suffering. Salvation, not from a distance, but God came. The incarnation, he took on flesh. He identified with us. He ate like us. He breathed the air like us. He drank from the water we drank. He walked among us. And then he died on our behalf. And that word, a founder, when it says founder of our salvation, is not just one who just started something and walks away. Or other translations say author as if he just kind of writes a story. But it's so much more than that. The actual word there in the original language is the word archagon, which is more closely translated as champion. In fact, in the Greek world, uh, one of the titles they would give to Hercules is archagon. Is they would call Hercules a champion. Someone who goes to battle and wins. And so this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell the fellowship in Hebrews, saying Jesus is our champion. He goes to battle, suffering on our behalf. He went to battle on our behalf, and he came victorious on our behalf. And Jesus is our rescue. Jesus is our hero. When the battle seems like it's you know, it's just so rough, and uh, it's, it's how are we going to win this? How are we going to overcome? He wants us to remember Jesus has overcome death. Do you remember what Hebrews was drifting away for? They were, they were scared of. They were fearful of death. And Hebrews, the author is saying, Jesus overcame that, and he made a way for you to be saved from the fear and the slavery of death. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is our champion in which his victory now becomes our victory. And his, um, his suffering has made a way for our salvation. I want to just encourage you real quick that whatever battle you're going through, whatever is happening in your personal life, whatever thing is keeping you up at night, causing you to lose sleep, whatever battle that may be, whatever storm it may be, even now, you can turn that battle and give it to the Lord. There is no battle that Christ cannot overcome in your life. There is no battle in which he cannot strengthen you. There is no battle in which he cannot comfort you. He's been through it and come, comes out victorious. This should remind us of where our hope is in the world, that our hope in the world is not in the world, that our anchor in the world is not in the world, our joy in this world is not in the world. But as we look to Christ, we see our hope. As we look to Christ, we see our anchor. As we look to Christ, we see our joy. So he wants us to see Jesus, the one who has made salvation possible for us. And he's not ashamed to call you his son. He's not ashamed to call you his child and his daughter. Number four is that he wants us to see the sacrifice of Jesus Verse 14 says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, 
and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That word destroy to render ineffective any plan, anything that the enemy, that the devil wanted to do, had schemed. Through Christ, he has rendered that ineffective. He has rendered the enemy ineffective. We have a great champion on our behalf. We have a great author and founder of salvation on our behalf. We have one that goes before us and he, everything is in subjection to him. There is nothing that's outside his, in his control. And he's destroyed the power of death and all those by grace through faith who believe in him, who trust in Christ, we are delivered, it says, we're delivered from this lifelong slavery of the fear of death. And so in this life, we don't have to be a slave to that fear of death, to, to the Hebrew fellowship. He's saying, you don't have to be afraid to the fear of death. Christ has conquered, destroyed the enemy, right? And he destroys the power of death through his own death. He destroys the power and the sting and the, the fear of, and slavery of death by his own death, which is why in verse 17, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus, he had become our merciful and faithful high priest. Why did Jesus have to come and take on human form and human flesh? It's because Jesus had to become our high priest because the duty of the high priest was to provide sacrifices as a mediator on behalf of the people of God so that those who have sinned against God through that sacrifice can now experience the presence of God. But unlike every other priest, the sacrifice Jesus came to give was not a bull, not another dove, but the sacrifice Jesus came to give was himself, which is why Hebrews is saying, look at Jesus. Jesus and his sacrifice, he gave himself. He didn't say, why don't you go over here, little dove or little bull. He says, I will give myself on behalf of his people. He becomes the sacrifice. The one who is all powerful took the position of the powerless and he dies on the cross for you and me and he drinks from that bitter cup of death and by his death, Jesus liberates all those who were held in slavery by the fear of death. And whatever is holding you down today, I want to encourage you. There is nothing that God cannot help you with. That God can be your help. That God can be your anchor. God can be your hope. God can be your joy. God can be your salvation. Because he has become our sacrifice. So friends, take hope that what we could not do on our own and giving ourselves as a sacrifice for the world, God did on our behalf. He became the sacrifice for us. Last but not least, but the author of Hebrews wants us to see the sufficiency of Jesus. The sufficiency of Jesus. He says in verse 18 that he is able to help all those who are being tempted or that were tested. He is able. And I want you to remember that this way. He is able. Don't question that. Can he? I want you to tell yourself he is. He is able. God is able to help me, to help you, to help us when we are being tested. He wants us to see the sufficiency of Jesus. Because in verse 17 it says, he became like us in every way. How is, it, how is he sufficient to help us when we're tested? 
How is he sufficient to help us when we're tempted? Here's why. You know, because when Jesus came, he took on human form. And when Jesus was tempted and when Jesus was tested, he didn't give into testing and he didn't give into temptation the way we did. You might wonder, how is that possible? Like Jesus doesn't experience life the way I do. He's not in my circumstances. You know, he's not in my shoes. And, and the real answer is, is that only the one who has fully resisted temptation can understand the full intensity of temptation. Does that make sense? So only the one who's fully resisted to the point of suffering can truly understand the weight and the full gravity, the full extent of what temptation can actually do. And the only one, the Bible says, who has fully resisted to that point is Jesus himself. That's why no matter what testing or temptation you're in, Jesus can relate and much more because he has fully resisted to the point of suffering. Philip Hughes, another scholar, he says regarding Christ that he knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we who have not withstood it to the end cannot know. Because Christ fully resisted, Christ can sympathize. Like he's with you in your weakness. And he, because he's fully resisted through every temptation and every testing and, and not giving in, he can understand and he is able to help. I want to just encourage you real quick as I close. If you're joining in the service today and you feel tested, you feel tempted, you feel like it's easier just to drift, you feel weak, you feel like you're in a low moment of your life, you feel like life is dim right now, I want you to know that you're probably not alone. But I also want you to know that if you're tested in every way, it's not too late to turn to Jesus. Even in this service, even after the service, you can turn to Jesus. Jesus is not just with us in our worship. He's with us in our weakness. It's not as if God logs into our 10 o'clock a.m. live service and then logs out when we're done. Jesus is with you now by his spirit in you when you call him Lord and you declare him as Lord and you trust in him. He, He is not just with you but he lives in you by spirit and he's closer to you than you actually can imagine or think and so even now you can turn to jesus because he is able to help and he's with us in our weakness as i close i want to read this to you i I came across this in my study it's a document called the heidelberg confession that dates back about 500 years and it's basically a document of uh, Protestant confessions in the form of Q&A. And they'll pose a question and they'll, they'll confess. Of, uh, there will be a confession of their faith through their answer. And I want to read you one question and one answer they have. The question is, what is thy only comfort in life and in death? And they write as their answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also reassures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. 
And so as you remember the supremacy of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, salvation in Jesus, sacrifice of Jesus, and the sufficiency of Jesus, may that reassure you today of how good our God is and make your heart and my heart and our heart willing and ready to live unto him. Would you bow your heads with me?